John chapter 11, verse number 1, and I'm in Deuteronomy. Thank you. Help him, Lord, help him. Now, a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. This is not the last of Jesus' earthly miracles, but the raising of Lazarus, you could call it the pinnacle. This is, this is that defining miracle of his earthly ministry. Now, understandably, no one single act of Christ aroused such reaction from those that were acquainted with it. I mean, it's a big deal to feed 5,000 people, but it's a bigger deal in, in the human way of thinking to bring somebody back from the dead. This man was clearly dead, and, and we'll get into that in the message. There was no question about it. And now this man, known to be dead, no question, stood before them alive. And I believe God would have us to hang around this passage for the next couple of weeks. We're going to try and squeeze everything out of it that we can. We're going to look at it from different perspectives. You know, Martha had a perspective, and Mary had a perspective, and I guess we could say that Lazarus had a perspective on it too. For this message this morning, though, we want to focus our attention on three indispensable truths that we're all going to need when we encounter what this family from Bethany did. You see, this family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they encountered four things. Times of misunderstanding, trials of misery, touches of melancholy, and even tombs of mourning. And beloved, you live any time at all, you're going to encounter these things. You're going to encounter times of misunderstanding. You don't understand what God's doing or what you perceive he's not doing. You're going to have trials of misery. Why am I going through this? You're going to have touches of melancholy. Sadness will touch your life. And eventually you'll even have to stand at tombs of mourning. So we're going to take a closer look at Mary and Martha and Lazarus in future messages, but right now we want to spend our time on these truths. And we're going to speak on this subject, navigating our times, trials, touches, and tombs. Navigating our times, trials, touches, and tombs. Father, would you help me to handle your word correctly this morning? May Christians be helped. If there's somebody here that's not saved, somebody listening online that's not saved, I pray they'd see the need for the Savior and come to Jesus before it's too late. More than anything else, may Jesus be lifted up. For it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. I don't often do this, but I'm going to put a question out to you, and I'd like for you to answer. 
If there were a key word in John chapter 11 of this whole, this whole scene, what do you think would be the key word of this, of this passage? Anybody? Boy, it's just like in school. Well, that's a good one. That's a good one. That's the ultimate goal. You're preaching my third point for me. I'd have to say the key word is believe. Because it pops up eight times in this passage. Eight times the word believe in some form is used. It's all about your belief, friend. Now, it could be that you're here today, and I don't know everybody's heart, but on a Sunday morning, there's a, a better than average chance that somebody's here that's never trusted Christ. I want you to know something. If, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, you are not in a room of people that look down on you or that think, mm-hmm, yeah, that one there, that, that's not at all where you are this morning. You're in a room full of people that all at some point had to figure out that they needed the Savior. Everybody in here is a sinner, and the difference between us and anybody else is whether or not we've applied the grace of God to our lives. Every one of us had to come to the cross the same way, it's level ground. Nobody's better than anybody else. And if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you, the only difference between us and you is our sin got forgiven. Right. You see, we don't go to heaven because we're good people. Because there's a whole lot of times in my life I'm not a good person. Abby back here will tell you I'm not a good person at basketball practice. I'm not. I'm not. I'm a mean coach. I'm mean. The only thing that tempers me is my precious wife, who's not quite as mean. But the reality of it is, we, 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 aren't, we aren't perfect, are we? And that's the standard to get into heaven is complete holiness. you got to think right, act right, do right, say right. And if you ever fall short of that, you've offended God's righteousness, you've offended the law. And God, being righteous, can't accept us. But Jesus came to this earth. And he took your sin and my sin upon himself and he hung on that cross between heaven and earth and suffered our hell and, and endured our shame and, and, and endured the wrath of God, absorbed it for our sakes. He died, they buried him, and on the third day he rose again. And he offered his blood as the final and only sacrifice for sin. And if you'll put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today, you'll be saved, you'll be on your way to heaven, you'll have his Holy Spirit living within you and you'll never be alone again. And heaven will be your home. If you've never trusted Christ, I plead with you to understand you're among friends today. And we want you to be part of our family. Not be a Baptist. Not be a, you know, a, you know this, this, this conservative, you know, churchy kind of... No, we want you to be part of the family of God. Because really that's all that matters. Is whether or not you're going to heaven. But Christian, our belief doesn't stop at the moment of our salvation. We've got to believe God the whole way through. Not because we're trying to keep our salvation. You can't lose it. But are we not called upon to trust Christ and believe on him throughout all kinds of situations in life? I'm going to trust him with my soul, and I've got to trust him with my job, and I've got to trust him with my family, and I've got to trust him with my health, and I've got to, you know, just everything. We've got to trust him. I believe that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, all three were saved people. And I think that what we're facing here is not a matter of them believing to be saved. Jesus is trying to, find, Jesus is trying to get them to see what they're willing to believe now that they are saved. And if we're going to maintain our faith amidst difficult situations, and some of you, many of you have already been through these, and some of you will go through these again, and some of you are in the middle of one right now. 
There's three truths you got to believe. Now, if you're looking for a doctoral level thesis, you're not going to get it this morning. These are super simple. These are super simple. Number one, here's the first truth you need to believe. Jesus loves you more than you know. Jesus loves you more than you know. If I'm going to navigate through my times and trials and touches and tombs, then I have to constantly keep in front of me the conviction that Jesus loves me more than I even know he does. Look at verse number one. A certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which, which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. In verse number 3, they sent word that he whom thou lovest is sick. And then John, in verse number 5, under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, confirms that Jesus did indeed love Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. So we're all good. We're all square, right? There's one problem. The, The message they sent to Jesus uses a different word than the message of John in verse number 5. They said, Jesus, he whom thou lovest, phileo, he who you love like family, is sick. But John tells us that Jesus didn't just love them like family. He uses a different word, agapao, which means he whom thou love without reservation, without taking it back, without condition, even if it isn't returned, even if it isn't reciprocated. Jesus has decided to love us with everything that he has, no matter what. What does that tell us? They didn't understand just How much Jesus loves them. Can I tell you something, friend? I don't care what you've done, what you're in the middle of, what you're caught up in, what you've got in your past, or what you think you might have in your future. My Bible tells me that God so loved the world, that includes you, that he gave his only begotten son. That word love is not phileo, friend. It's agapao. It is without condition. It is without reservation. It does not matter if you return it. It does not matter if you reciprocate it. He's going to love you whether you want him to or not, and he is not going to hold back. He's going to love you with everything that you have, even if you go to hell without taking, taking advantage of it. Have you, have you ever considered that, that everybody that's in hell, God loves them? He loves you more than you know. Now, here's where we get into trouble. The devil's smart. Very, very smart. Problems come when we don't fully appreciate the level of another's love. Let's take a marriage, for example. Now, by God's grace, I don't deserve it, not one bit. But as best I can tell, my marriage is strong and sound And I am thankful for that, okay? But for us to have problems, I don't have to come to the conclusion that my wife doesn't love me anymore. 
All it takes is for me to come to the conclusion that she doesn't love me as much anymore. Right? Would it not be difficult for you if you came to the conclusion that your spouse did not love you as much as they used to? Well, the devil knows how we think. And the devil doesn't need to convince us that Jesus doesn't love us at all. All he has to do is convince us that Jesus doesn't love us as much as he really does. What do I mean? Think about Eve. When when Satan came to Eve in the garden, he didn't put forward this notion that God's not a good God. Oh, Eve, he's a terrible God. You, You ought to serve me. No, no, no. He can't argue with the fact that God put them in a perfect environment with everything they could want. They're in a perfect marriage. Everything's just as as wonderful as it can be. He puts in this tiny little seed. Yea, hath God said. And he goes on to say, basically what he's saying is, God's holding out on you just a little bit. You could have more than what you have right now. And can I tell you, friend? When you're in a bad situation, when your times, when your trials, when your tombs, when your your touches are difficult, the devil will come in and he won't tell you God doesn't love you. He'll tell you he doesn't love you like he loves somebody else. He'll tell you he doesn't love you as much as he used to. Satan's too smart to think that we will believe that God doesn't love us. He's done too much good for us. But if he can get us to thinking that his love is something less than what it is. But I'm going to tell you, you get it burned into your mind and heart and soul that Jesus loves you more than you could ever fathom. It'll, it'll bring you through some tough times. I know that he loves me. I know that his love for me is unfathomable. I know that his love for me is, is just completely irrational. I know that his love for me is unconditional. I know that his love for me has nothing to do with whether or not I'm living for him. He just loves me because he loves me. And you start really banking on that truth, it'll ride you through the toughest of situations. So you got to get through this thing. Remember that Jesus loves you more than you know. And number two, that the this, this second one's not going to be as encouraging because it flies against our human nature in a big way. You ready? Jesus loves you more than you know, but if you're going to get through the times, trials, touches, and tombs of life, here's the second one. You ready? What happens to you isn't always about you. But wait a minute, Andy. It's always all about me. I sometimes jokingly tell people, those of you that think everything's all about you, bother those of us that it actually is all about us. And we hear it said all the time, it's not always about you. But let's be honest, in our human nature, it kind of is. It kind of is. Something interesting here. It's evident from Jesus' statement and subsequent prayer that Lazarus' illness and his death wasn't primarily about Lazarus. And though it did teach him some things and teach Mary some things and teach Martha some things, it wasn't primarily about Mary and Martha either. Look at verse 11. These things saith he, and after that 
Why didn't some of y'all, one of y'all tell me I had my tag still on my suit? How could you let me leave the office in such a fashion faux pas? I know what you're thinking. Well, it's not about you. You're right. It's not. (laughs) All right. Let's get back to the important stuff. Verse 11. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Now, what are they really saying? Well, if he's sleeping, he's going to get better, and we don't have to make this day-long trip to Bethany. He's doing well. Verse 13, Howbeit Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest and sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now look at verse 15. And I am glad that I was not there. I left out a phrase, didn't I? I am glad, not for Lazarus' sake, not for Mary and Martha's sake. I'm glad for your sake. Part of this is for you, fellas. I am glad for your sake that I was not there to the intent that ye may, what? Believe. Now, he's not talking about getting saved, although Judas obviously isn't saved. The other other 11, they're saved. He's talking about deepening their faith. By the way, you can't have a deeper faith without some tombs and some troubles and some trials. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Now, look at verse number 41. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of who? The people which stand by said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Though Lazarus and Mary and Martha did have something to gain from this thing, who was it for? The disciples and the people. That's who it was for. So Mary and Martha and even Lazarus, they're not going through this necessarily because God's trying to teach them something or do something for them. They're going through this for the sake of others. Let's try to equate that to something we can wrap our minds around. If the doctor came to me and said, Andy, one of your children has this terrible disease, and the only way that they're going to, they're going to survive this disease, if they receive something from your body to their body, you know, whether it's a, a transplant of some sort or whatever, the only way that they're going to survive is if you give of yourself for them. Now, here's the thing. It's not going to be that tough on them, but it is going to be excruciatingly painful for you. Any parent in here would say, sign me up. Let's do it right now. What are we waiting for? Because we're parents that love our children. We we can understand that concept. But sometimes we need to understand that what we're going through spiritually is not for our benefit. It's to benefit somebody else. It's to help them because it's not necessarily about us. Can I remind you that Jonah wasn't the only one impacted by his whole deal with the whale? Those guys in that ship came to know the living God because of Jonah's situation. 
Nineveh came to know the living God because of Jonah's situation. There's always somebody else that can be impacted. It's not always about us. This was about deepening the disciples' faith and drawing more to the fold. And while God will certainly teach us through our trials, could it be that what you're facing is as much about reaching others as it is about teaching you something? As much about reaching our children, our church, our community, our co-workers. I'm not inviting something into my life, but we're still doing tests and we're still getting looked at. And I feel pretty good today. Thank you for praying for me. I feel pretty good today. I don't look as good as I feel, but I feel pretty good. Which is usually I look better than I feel, but anyway. But what if the doctor comes back and says, well, Andy, we hadn't considered this, but we, we run the test and you've got this and it's bad. Obviously, God will want to teach me something through that, but do you think how I handle that is going to impact you? Is it going to impact my kids, my wife, others? Can I tell you something? I don't know, I don't know what, what God did for Curtis Hudson when he was dying, but if you've ever seen the video of him singing, I'm on the winning side, the last time he preached publicly before he died, if you've ever seen the video of him doing that, I'm going to tell you what, what he went through sure did impact a lot of people. My friend Shane Lewis, who's now in heaven, dying of, dying of cancer, pastoring his church. I'm, I don't know what God did for him, but he did a lot for a lot of other people. Sometimes it's about others. And we whine and we complain, Lord, get me out of this. But if God gets you out of this, then you won't see the fruit of what it's meant to accomplish. Jesus loves you more than you know. Number two, what happens to you isn't always about you. And then number three, the darker the problem, the brighter the solution. Verse 38. Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, cometh to the, to the grave. That word groan is an interesting. You look at these words that are used. When Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five. It was a quiet, tearful exchange. But when he's groaning in himself, it has the idea of a snort. Have you ever been in such duress that you just started making noise that was almost involuntary? <laughs> you ever been there? Jesus is so grieved over the effects of sin He's grieved over the Pharisees that even after seeing Lazarus walk out of the tomb are now going to plan to kill Jesus and Lazarus. He's grieved over this. His heart is broken over this. So he comes and he's groaning within himself. It was a cave, verse 38, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, take you away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, everybody's favorite King James word, Lord, by this time he stinketh. For he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, said I not unto thee 
that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. And they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe me that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and which had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. If you do the math, it would appear as though Lazarus died not long after the messenger left to go get Jesus. Jesus was a day away. He stayed for two days, and it was a day to travel there, and Lazarus had been dead four days. So it's apparent that Lazarus died real quick after the messenger left. He was unmistakably, unmistakably dead. There was a Jewish belief that after somebody died that the soul would float around the body for three days in case, just in case, God would so will for that soul to go back in. It's interesting. How long was he in the tomb? Four days. So in the Jewish way of thinking, this man was dead. But even beyond the Jewish way of thinking, I don't mean to be crass, but when they opened that tomb, when Jesus said, roll that stone back, everybody within smelling distance knew that in that tomb was a dead body. It was horrific. And I don't believe that Jesus supernaturally got rid of the smell. No, I think it was there because that was part of what people needed to know. And so here you have this young man, and I do think he was young, Lazarus. The tragedy of his death, the, the, the confusion over why this man who was a friend of Jesus, Jesus didn't bother to heal him. He could have healed him from where he was. And then he says to open the stone. And when he does, the smell just permeates the air. I'm telling you, it was as bad as it could be. All hope was gone. Everything is rancid and horrible. And then what does Jesus do? If this were the opening of the tomb, Jesus doesn't maintain a fair distance. He steps in the doorway, and all of the stench that is coming out of that tomb is hitting him square in the face. By the way, friend, whatever stench you find yourself in in life, he's there with you. He doesn't mind getting dirty. He doesn't mind being where you are. He said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. Lo, I'm with thee always, even to the end of the world. Then he punctuated with amen. And not only that, it says he cried out. When you cry out something, what do you do before you cry it out? You take in a breath. So he took in that foul air. He smells it. He tastes it. 
It's in his clothes. Lazarus, come forth. Everybody there knows Lazarus is dead. This is a dark, dark day, a problem that is ugly. But as soon as he says, Lazarus, come forth, all of a sudden the air sweetens. Perhaps it's the smell of Messiah, the smell of heaven, the aloes and myrrh and casia takes over. And what was once rancid and putrefying and nauseating is now sweet and refreshing and eye-opening. And next thing you see is that man who was dead and decaying shuffling to that doorway. Loose him and let him go. <laughs> Andy, my problem's bad. It ain't that bad. God can't handle my suit. He could handle that. And if he can handle that, he can handle your problem. Your marriage isn't that dead. talked to some friends just last night. Their marriage was gone. It was gone. It stunk. It was bad. As I talked to them last night, you know what they were doing? Sitting at their home on their back porch with a TV on the back porch watching the Alabama game talking about going to church. God healed it and is healing it. I don't know what you're going through, friend. I don't know how dark your problem is, but I know that there's a mighty bright solution out there. Actually, he's not out there. He's in here. And sometimes God lets things get bad, lets things get stinky, let things get nauseating so that nobody can step up and explain it. All you can say is it must have been God. Because he's the only one to do this. So what? Every one of us, there's no exceptions. We're all going to face our times of misunderstanding. We don't don't get what God's doing. We're all going to go through trials of misery, and many already have. We're going to have touches of melancholy. Man, I know all about that. That's my tendency. They talk about being sanguine versus being melancholy. I tend to be melancholy. I tend towards sadness, which in my line of work is not good, but I tend towards sadness. Doesn't matter. And in time, we all have to face tombs of mourning. 
What do we do? When those hit, there's three things you've got to reiterate in your heart. We talked in Sunday school this morning about casting down imaginations, false thoughts that the devil plants in our head, that if we don't cast them down, they'll become truth in our mind, and then before you know it, you're acting on something that's not even true. How do we do that? We reinforce in our minds, no, I know this is bad, but Jesus loves me more than I know. I know this is bad, but what happens to me isn't always about me. There's somebody else out there that needs this. I know this is bad. I know it's dark. But the darker the problem, the brighter the solution. I've often thought about Lazarus. I've said before, he got, he got the worst deal out of this whole thing. He's, he's in paradise. Enjoying all of it. Lazarus! He's going to say, welcome. (laughs) Come forth! What? If I'm Lazarus, I walk out of that tomb, and I look at Mary and Martha, and I say, thanks. I assume you haven't fixed the air conditioning yet. But there came a day that Lazarus died again. Maybe his wife's with him this time. Lazarus, are you okay? (laughs) I'm more than okay. (laughs) I know where this leads. I know how this goes. I'm I'm looking forward to what comes next. And if you'll reiterate those truths in your mind, when life gets dark, you'll have that kind of peace too. But only if we hold on to those truths can we navigate these times, these trials, these touches, these tombs.